Welcome back to Decrypt. I'm your host, Nick Rice, and today I'm delighted to be joined again by Stina Connor from our CTI team. Welcome back, Stina. Thanks very much. Good to be here. And in the studio with us is also none other than Chuck Hacker. Uh, for those of you who aren't familiar with Chuck, and I don't think there's many of you out there, he is one of our most senior geopolitical risk specialists and half of the hosting duo of our amazing Global Insight podcast. Chuck, thank you so much for joining us on Decrypt. Nick, thank you for the plug for the Global Insight and thank you for the invitation to join you on your podcast, I feel like I'm one step away from getting on with Kara Swisher. <laughs> well, we're really glad to have you on board today, Chuck. And and guys, in today's episode, we asked a provocative and potentially rhetorical question of why the lights in New York City's have not been switched off by a cyber attack yet. And as you both know, and I think as many of our listeners know, we live in a world where connectivity is increasingly ubiquitous. Power grids, transportation networks, water supplies, traffic lights, you name it, all of these are connected and to some extent susceptible to cyber attacks. We can go back to 2007 in Estonia, we can go back to 2014 across Eastern Europe, we can go back to WannaCry and NotPetya in 2017, or more recently, the city of Baltimore being held for ransom by ransomware groups. All of these have been indication that capabilities for large-scale cyber disruption exist. And yet, we haven't really seen warfare. At least that's what we're going to dive into today. And I kind of want to go into more specifically whether or not this is an issue of capability or an issue of intent. And before we get started, maybe Stina, I'd be really curious to hear your take on this. You've been looking at nation states and criminal activities for quite a while now. What do you think? I mean, I think there's a few elements in coming to that point of intent and capability. We can kind of dive into what what in Impacts what here, but I think it's also around perceptions, right? What what do we think this is going to look like? So coming back to your point, actually the disruption has been there. We have seen it. We 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 saw the colonial pipeline attack last year, leading to supply disruptions, fuel supply disruptions for days in the U.S. We've got just a couple of weeks ago, uh, Montenegro essentially sustaining a, a, a a massive attack and and having to to kind of switch to to um, to manual operations and and warnings coming out around the impacts of that beyond the kind of pure network impact. So there is disruptions here and 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 we have seen that. So clearly, capabilities exist to do this, whether we're talking about advanced cyber criminals or nation state actors. So that's that's just kind of the perception of what we think this is going to look like, you know, is it switching off the lights uh, in New York or, or is there something that is just kind of creeping into the everyday operations of this stuff? But I think the question itself is merited, particularly in light of, of Ukraine. And I know we're going to come back to that, but, you know, why haven't we seen, if we if these capabilities are there, why aren't they being used? And I think, you know, that's that's really the core crux um, of, of the question. 
and and Montenegro was a particularly interesting case because it was the first time where we had a U.S. embassy official message warning American citizens in Montenegro that the potential for disruption was incredibly elevated and they needed to be worried about availability of ATM networks, availability of utilities networks. So we're also seeing a bit of a change in the discourse that many governments are having around cyber disruption, warfare. And and Chuck, I'm 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 curious from your take in the geopolitical landscape. You know, we've seen and and I'm, you know, the Global Insight has been talking about this for a while, or broader global risk analysis team have been talking about this for a while. What seems from the outside is an incredibly tensed and potentially heightened level of tensions between state. Is that also what you're seeing? Is there a sense that we're we're at an unprecedented times and a potential risk for state-on-state conflict? Yeah. I mean, a few things on that. First of all, the first thing that ran through my head when you started to talk about what, what was happening in Montenegro, you know, it's a relatively small country and I'm wondering on some level if that's not a rehearsal or a practice for something that might happen in a much larger country. Um, number one. Um, number two, I'm, I'm also really glad to hear Sina sort of validate the question about, you know, why haven't the lights gone out in New York as, as part of a cyber conflict? Um, because, you know, maybe this is because I was raised on a diet of 1970s disaster movies like, you know, The Towering Inferno and, and an Earthquake, um, both of a very fine 1974 vintage that, that lead me a little bit to catastrophize, even though that's not good risk management practice. Um, But we are, Nick, in periods, in a period of incredible complexity and tension and disruption and uncertainty. And maybe everybody says this about their particular epoch or their era. Um, But, you know, control risk has been around for 40 years And I think over the course of a lot of that history, we really haven't seen very much like this. Mm -hmm. Um, And so cyber as a tool of conflict and cyber as an actor in this disruption and in this instability and in this uncertainty is extremely valid. And, And I think what we should unpack a little bit is clearly the capability is there. I mean, I've learned that you can hack a pacemaker, just the the tiny little thing that's inside your chest regulating your heartbeat. Um, So the capability on the micro level and the macro level is enormous. Um, I wonder what the breaks are on the intent to fully deploy that awesome and terrifying capability. We're getting to a point where we are so connected and you know, that level of impact we're talking about here, turning the lights off in the US, is an extreme escalation, an extreme escalation in a setting that is as geopolitically tense as, as, as you described, Chuck. So there is a balance here. There is, you know, a, a sense of finding, you know, what can be done here and what are the the risks of doing that versus the reward. And I think that's really where this comes down in terms of, you know, what is that breaking point and what, you know, what can, what can be done uh, in this setting. And that's also where we see 
proxy conflicts or or rather kind of these kind of testing capabilities and 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 launching these types of attacks either in a sense of look we can do this if we need to to signal to opponents that we have the access we can do we have the capabilities to show on on you know other parties that this is what we could be doing um you know that's a crit- critical piece in this right so it's not necessarily a discussion of, you know, when are lights switching off in, in the US or in Russia, but rather, you know, what are we actually um, going to see elsewhere as part of that that balancing act or part of that competition? So, Nick, this is your podcast, but do you mind if I ask you no, a question? Go for it, Chuck. Are we in, in cyber conflict? Are we at a point that we used to talk about in nuclear positioning of mutually assured destruction. And that is that if the lights go out in New York City, then you can believe that within a matter of seconds, they would go out in, oh, I don't know, for example, Moscow. Um, Is that what is keeping us from envisioning or materializing Mm -hmm. the worst case scenario? And then what builds in underneath that? I think, and, and Stina, I'd be really keen to hear your take on this as well. I think, Chuck, we are, but it's a temporary state and we're going to go beyond mutually assured destruction. One of the fundamental tenets of cyber and cyberspace broadly, so when we're looking not just at the weaponization of digital capabilities, but actually the ecosystem itself, that interconnectivity, is that it's asymmetric. When we were looking at nuclear deterrence, it was symmetrical capabilities. It was a traditional arms race. You have... Nuclear submarines, I'm going to build nuclear submarines. You have ICBMs that can carry nuclear warheads. I'm going to build ICBMs that can carry nuclear warhead. The difference in the game here is that capabilities in cyber, the barriers to entry for destruction and disruption are much lower. And and this is a really interesting concept. I think we're, we're International relations and geopolitics can guide us in our thinking is an understanding the intent of rational actors. In in cyber, we have the added complexity where, and this was the case with NotPetya, particularly in 2017. And, and to your point, Chuck, the assumption was that NotPetya was very much a rehearsal, a dress rehearsal of a capability that could be leveraged by a nation state against critical infrastructure globally. Um, those capabilities were actually taken and developed through capabilities that had been built by the NSA and that had been stolen a few months prior to that. And this is where, you know, for years I've tried to do the comparison between nuclear deterrence and cyber. I actually think we should look at cyber much more like we've been looking at pandemics and biological warfare, where once a virus is developed and released into the environment, it essentially can be weaponized by anyone. And, and this is where the stage beyond mutually assured destruction is mutually assured destruction, not state on state of equal power rankings, but actually mutually assured destruction by anyone. Um, and that's a real concern in the escalatory path. And I think on the, the points that you both raise of this unprecedented level of geopolitical tension, I think one of the challenges we're dealing with here is that we're not only looking at political actors, we're also looking at lone wolves. We're also looking at kids who may accidentally do something. Yeah, and even even more so, we're looking at at groups that sit outside of, of that 
or you know that aren't primarily directed by that geopolitical setting but have access to a lot of the the disruptive potential that we've seen of the the attacks that we mentioned in kind of around the 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 what we've seen recently is criminal groups right mm -hmm. that have access to this so there's that to, and I think to your point Nick around that um we can we can kind of predict state state behavior uh to some extent and and then the mechanisms of controlling that uh, might kind of correlate but when it comes to cyber the, the capabilities for disruption and and you know the intent to use that goes much wider um so so i think that makes it a much more complex situation because even if we can find that balance and we can we can kind of control and we have that deterrence on a state level you're still going to have actors that have access to these types of tools and can can launch them for their own um their own benefit and i kind of want to extrapolate from from these points and and look a little bit into the future and here chuck and i'd be interested in where you see the world going and it's just a small question you know you can i'm sure you can answer it in a minute um, but it very much as as you look at what's happened over the past two to three years, and particularly this year, with the return of, of conflict in the heart of Europe, with increasing tensions between the East and the West in many ways, with, with real challenges, I think, of systemic proportions, are we looking for quite a pessimistic outlook tomorrow? Or is this potentially just a little bit of a, look, we're reeling from the effects of a global pandemic. We've got crazy inflationary pressures everywhere. People are just panicked a little bit. Yeah. The answer to your question is not really sort of either or, it's just sort of yes. <laughs> so before I describe where we think the world is going, let's just pause for half a second and try to touch on where we think the world is not going. Um, and, you know, after hearing your description of how people could even accidentally trigger a major cyber incident, you know, I wanted to sort of leave the studio and, and run home and unplug everything in, in my flat. Um, but we have a tendency to visualize worst case scenarios. And one of the places that we think the world is likely not going to is some of our worst case scenarios. Um, now, look, um, Having said that, some pretty bad things that we weren't anticipating have happened. Um, and we have a lot of clients coming to us and say, yeah, stop talking to me about worst case scenarios because we've been dealing in a worst case scenario now for about the past three years. So, you know, a pandemic that unfolded in ways that very, very few people forecast. Um, conflict in Europe in a way that very, very few people forecast. Um, so while we appear to be living under a number of worst case scenarios, um, that doesn't necessarily mean that things are going to continue to escalate. And, and the question that everybody asks is, will this lead to a conflict between China and Taiwan? And will we wind up in a global military conflict? And the answer from our team of analysts in the Asia Pacific region, including in China, is that the likelihood of that worst case scenario materializing is extremely low. Beyond that, though, briefly, um, you know, this uncertainty and this complexity at an unprecedented level is going to continue. Um, and I think we are still in this period of tectonic shifts geopolitically, and it's causing extreme global 
discomfort and it has yet to settle into a new paradigm or a new pattern. And until that happens, we're going to have geopolitical tremors consistently and constantly for the foreseeable future. Um, they may not be of a scale of a conflict between China and Taiwan, but there's plenty short of that that is extremely disruptive. And, and that's what companies have to think about and prepare for. Stina, where are you at with this? If you think about it from the cyber perspective, what we're hearing from Chuck is it's not going to be great in the years ahead, but we're probably not going to see the most catastrophic outcomes. Do you, do you get the sense, is, are these the questions that our clients are asking you? Why haven't we seen Ukraine completely shut off the grid since since the beginning of the conflict? Or should we expect our operations in China to be shut down by overzealous Western agencies? Yeah, I mean, I think to 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 that point, one of the things that that the the kind of complexity and, and the disruption that, that Chuck touches on has brought is that thinking around worst case scenarios, right? What what is going to happen? next but i think in the in the kind of grander scheme of things to call it that but i mean cyber is very much interlinked to what is happening in the world there is a lot of it that isn't necessarily so much um but it is linked to it so and we've seen i think with with um with ukraine but also before then how important of a tool it is in particular in scenarios that are short of an outright military um conflict and i think you know we can come back to to kind of lessons from from ukraine and so forth but you know it is a tool for exerting um pressure and power it's a tool for achieving your goals short of of military escalation so it is one that is going to be readily there within these um kind of shifts and and conflicts that that um Chuck touches on and it's something that needs to be factored into that and I think increasingly will also drive those um shifts those conflicts um when these kind of points when when that line is passed or something is is kind of beyond what is acceptable I think there's also a shift here in 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 attitudes in in the way um these types of attacks are approached in that you know it needs to it needs to come down it needs to to actually be um, attached to some sort of, of um, countermeasure. Nick, I think there's an awful lot of, uh, you know, there's, there's an awful lot of anxiety or maybe perhaps more diplomatically stated, there's a lot of apprehension in the business community that I think Stina has just touched on. And, and that is short of all of our worst case scenarios, how bad, what do we need to plan for? What do we need to anticipate? What are we missing What's going to happen next that we haven't seen coming and how bad, short of catastrophe, is it going to be? And, and I don't think that we've settled yet on the size and the shape of, of what exactly to anticipate. And you don't want to be a chief security officer or a chief technical, um, technical officer Chief technological. Technological officer. These days, they're changing every day. Well, so. you, you don't want to be somebody with a C on their business card who's missed the next big thing. And we're working really hard to try to figure out what that next big thing is and how big it is and, and just what you don't want to be caught unaware of. 
And I think, Chuck, this is such an important point because we tend to interact with, with what we traditionally term the first line. So people working in security operations centers, people working in intelligence functions, people whose day job it is to support that forecasting. And, and oftentimes there is deep tensions between that C-suite and the doers to some extent of being asked, you know, please tell me, I mean, a classic example is, you know, I've heard on the news that there was a new APT unit that was targeting our sector. Like, what are we doing about it? And most of the defenders will turn around and be like, we, we're, we're doing our, our normal job. We've, we've always been dealing with this. So from what you're both describing, there's a bit of a need to, to sense check some of our assumptions about what's coming. But we need to also understand the pressures of the business community, the pressure that many governments have as well of being able to not just respond to these issues, but anticipate them. In, in a world where anticipation is getting increasingly complex, we were recently looking at things like emerging technology risks. And, you know, we, we started talking about it in our regulatory overview podcast and in the episode where Jim Fitzsimmons joined us from, from Asia. Uh, and we we're looking at how do we regulate artificial intelligence and, and how, how governments are starting to think about it. And the real challenge from an operational standpoint is having to deal with this implementation. So, I, I kind of want to pause it to both of you, you know, whilst, whilst we are in a situation where we have lived and we are still living through unprecedented times of, of challenges, or at least in, in recent history, uh, unprecedented challenging times, um, we are also in a world where our ability to respond to these issues is increasing. We, we we can think about the reaction that we've had to the pandemic. We can think about, you know, I do want to get quickly onto the subject of what we've seen happening in Ukraine and, and the implication from a cyber warfare standpoint. But do you think, Chuck, that we're today in a much better space to deal with that uncertainty than say if, if it come up 15 years ago? Yeah, I think we are. I mean, listen, we, we've set a fairly rich table of risk here over the past few minutes, and it's time to get out the knives and forks. And, and so there are concrete things that companies can and are doing right now to identify and digest and minimize risk um, and open up the bandwidth for expansion and opportunity and growth and, and development. And you said the word assumptions, and that is that the first thing that companies should be doing right now, if they aren't already, is re-examining all of the assumptions that they've made about how the world works and where they fit into it. Mm -hmm. The next thing that you do, which a lot of companies are already doing as well, is you have to make sure that the company has a common and shared language and sense of who and what it is in this universe. You know, what is its purpose? What are its values? Who are its stakeholders? You know, what matters to it? What kind of citizen is this company in, in this world? Um, then, you know, you figure out how this organization fits into the future and you make some scenarios about different ways that the world may look and, and different ways that the world may work in the future. And you stress test again all of those assumptions that you've made. Um, that gives you, we would think, a picture of emerging risks that then stay permanently on your risk radar and that you monitor and you check and you stress test over and over again. 
That stress testing is an interesting point because in our world, Stina, we, we talk about this ability to stress test your organization across every level from, from the most technical parts to your most executive part. Um, I want to quickly jump back on, on, on the Ukraine situation because I think this is where we, we had what we all thought was going to be a real life stress test of the global infrastructure's internet and telecommunication infrastructure's ability to withstand what what everybody at the onset thought was going to be large-scale, massive, global disruption. And yet, I don't think we saw that. Well, I mean, I think we're coming back to, to Chuck's exact point, and I think it's not just for, for businesses and our clients to reassess assumptions. I think we, as, as risk professionals, have looked at at uh, Ukraine and, and reassessed some of the assumptions that we had um, going into that as well. So I think this is probably the most common question that I get asked um, by clients at the moment is, have we overestimated capabilities? Have we overestimated intent? Why, why haven't we seen what we expected to see? And I think there's a few elements to that. And for it to say again, it's not for lack of trying. We have seen disruption in Ukraine um, of critical national infrastructure as part of this. This is not kind of something that was completely absent. We've also seen spillover effects of that elsewhere in Europe. So the the attack on Viasat in, in February is a very good example of that. Um We've seen attempts. We've, we we saw um, an updated Indestroyer too, going after um, Ukrainian energy grids yeah. that would have taken out two million households. The lights would have literally gone out. It was prevented, and this is where I think we need to particularly challenge assumptions. So the capability side, when we look at the adversary here, we know what can be done. We've seen examples of it. We've seen wiper after wiper after wiper in this yeah. conflict, but what we didn't anticipate to the same extent is the resilience and the ability to detect. And that, I think, in this situation is also one that is slightly unique in that Ukraine has been um, kind of the testing ground for these type of operations since 2014. It has had time to build this up. It has seen it happen. It has been able to stress test continuously its systems. But we've also seen a level of external support, whether that is from allied governments or whether that is from actually private sector enterprises that have gone out and dedicated resource to to supporting this, because you know again that's the kind of community of 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 uh, cybersecurity and cyber threat intelligence coming in and saying, okay, we will look for this. We will, you know, be part of that defensive yeah. structure. So there's a lot of components kind of coming into to to play there. Um, and that's what I kind of tell clients when, when we talk about this, because going from have we overestimated capabilities or intent in this, in this scenario to, okay, what does that mean for us is, you know, that leap between taking lessons from Ukraine and applying them to your own organization or your own country even is not necessarily applicable because we are in a situation that is that is not replicable um at the moment which means that you know can you count on the support from from Microsoft the support from 
you know, NATO allies mm. and so forth to defend uh, if this would happen in in uh, other countries. You know, it's it's yeah, I think I think we're still learning from that experience. And, and then also, I think we haven't touched on that, but just how cyber is used or not used in a, a kind of direct conflict, yeah. um, which in itself is, is you know, a, a, an area to unpack, unpack as well. If you have any questions about any topics regarding cybersecurity or technology issues, please feel free to email us and our experts will get back to you at cyber at controlrisks.com. It's fascinating because, and this is, I guess, a question of both of you, but increasingly there is discussion in the field as to whether or not we should even call it a cyber attack. Uh, should we be referring to cyber warfare? Should we be referring to cyber resilience? Um, some folks are making the argument that, as a matter of fact, it's an attack on critical infrastructure. Whether it is done via bombs or computer code, ultimately, the principle is that it is an attack. And very much so, cyber has been treated organizationally as a different type of risk, historically, because it was purely a technical risk. And these days, because it is so existential and so potentially concer concerning for most boards, just thinking back to the SEC directives that are starting to come out and the possibility for board members to have the need to be educated on cyber, it's always been treated a bit separately. First of all, my question, and I want to start with you, Chuck, is do you think we should drop the term cyber altogether? And tied to this is... Do you think treating that level of exceptionalism, that that what you said, you know, we're thinking about these catastrophic scenario, prevents effective risk management? Uh, a couple of things here, Nick. I mean, thanks for those questions. Um, there's a part of me that thinks that that language matters. Look, the the, the way you name things is important. At the same time, it is a little bit of a sideshow mm -hmm. um, and that we don't necessarily need to put language on trial here. Um, we need to focus on impacts and outcomes and, and risks. Um, and it's important what we call them, but it may not be of primary importance as long as we more or less understand what we're talking about. Um, so that's number one. Um, the second thing is once we do name these things, then what do we do? If we call something cyber warfare, um, then how do we back that up? And what kind of corner are we boxing ourselves into? And, and what do we do in terms of threat identification and then threat response? And, and I think it is sort of interesting that this area is in flux and that we don't yet know where the thresholds are of you know, when does cyber aggression equal traditional military aggression? You know, it's, it's a really interesting and, and probably fairly broad gray zone. You know, in other aspects, we know that, you know, closing the Straits of Hormuz would be an act of war. Um, and um, similar things like that that aren't necessarily, in, you know, don't involve firing a cannon. Um, so, you know... Let's worry about naming conventions um, a little bit later than, you know, understanding what the nature of these threats really are. And Stina, what do you think of this? I mean, I, I know it's a bit rich coming from both of us, because if, if that was to be the case, I think maybe our jobs would be slightly in jeopardy. But any immediate thoughts? 
as well, coming back to, to, to that point in terms of what is most uh, almost practical in this sense, right? When we look at, at, at these um, incidents and the impact that they have, does it help us to, to, to use that kind of terminology? And I'm inclined to think that it, it wouldn't necessarily do that. <laughs> I think it's, you know, also coming back to that point on, on, you know, the complexity of the actual landscape and who's doing what and when do we then, you know, if we talk about, you know, closing the, the, the Strait of Hormuz, it's something that is done by, by, uh, you know, militaries or it's done by a government, uh, licensed type of organization. There are frameworks to deal with that. And I think restricting ourselves to only talk about governments in the space of, of, of cyber is, is, not is counterproductive because not only because we see so many actors acting out of their own interest for various reasons, but also because of the links between those groups, right? So, you know, coming again back to that point around the type of disruption that we've seen, you know, we also kind of need to factor in the groups that act, um, you know, outside of a government framework, but that benefit um, a certain point of view and a certain agenda in this, right? We have cyber criminal groups, we have cyber activist groups that have engaged in disruption for for this effect. So I think limiting ourselves to a framework warfare, which is very much um, linked to states, will also kind of reduce our ability to see how this interacts with other types of things. And, and the impact itself, you know, the disruptive attacks that we've seen, you know, colonial, Montenegro, they are enabled by ransomware groups, by mm -hmm. criminal groups, right? So, you know, it doesn't necessarily help us in in how do we counter this and how do we, you know, identify what the key issues are when we talk about, you know, the impact level. Stina raises a really interesting point, and that is, does the type of confrontation derive from the actor that's driving it? Mm -hmm. and, and so, you know, Nick, would you be comfortable telling a client that their cyber attack is equivalent to an act of war. I mean, are, are we there yet? And, and especially if your client were, for example, a nation state, or if it were a private company that plays a role in critical national infrastructure, would you be comfortable sitting in front of that client and saying, this is hostility equal to a military invasion? It's an excellent question, Chuck. And I think the short answer is no. The longer answer is the challenge of attribution in our space has always been both a technical hurdle, being able to determine through the artifacts of code or the artifacts of network indicators that are left after a cyber attack, to be able to tie that up to a person, to a state, to an entity, is a real challenge. And I actually think it's it's a challenge that's coming more broadly. And I we are going to have a podcast on emerging technology risks, but when we look at deep fakes. Tomorrow, the possibility of attributing speech online to an actual person is going to be challenged. But beyond that attribution, I think we have in our space the problem of the undefined consequences. The fact that one of the reasons why I am uncomfortable with being able to make that analysis or that assessment for a client is because it is very difficult today for any of us to conceive of what would happen after that assessment was made public. And we saw the premises of this in Ukraine when NATO said that an attack on a NATO ally 
a cyber attack on a NATO ally could be justification for triggering of collective defense articles in the NATO charter. However, it continues to be a theoretical state. And one of my questions and why this conversation is so fascinating is will theory continue to develop and provide a framework before reality hits us? Will we be at a stage comfortable enough as private sector organizations, as governments, and as a society to say, we've established the rules of the games, those multilateral rules of the games, before the game tips over, before the game actually hits reality? And this is where I think geopolitics is so critical to this discussion, because for that to happen, we need multilateralism. So by multilateralism, you're saying collective defense. And you're saying something scary is about to happen, so let's all try to prevent it happening together. Or if it does happen, let's all react to it together. Uh, I think what you're also doing, though, and the thing that sets me a little bit on edge here, is that you're talking about drawing a whole new map of red lines. And some of those red lines, it sounds like, have already been crossed, but we don't know who's crossed them and we don't necessarily know why. And we're still not fully aware of the impact of, of those red lines having been crossed. There are others that we perhaps want to put out there, but we don't know how we'll respond geopolitically um, once they are crossed. And so this kind of this sort of comes from the Department of Careful What You Ask For. And, and, and I think you're right that maybe... You know, there's there's some advantage to be gained in describing the rules of the game a little bit better and a little bit more clearly, the rules of engagement. Um, and certainly you would like to see collective security um, because that, to me, suggests that there'll be a broader and and more widely accepted safety net out there that we can all sort of depend on. And that in turn becomes a form of deterrent. Um, but I think we're approaching this timidly and very, very carefully. Indeed we are. And this brings me to what I think should be, should be a key point in our discussion today. We've been talking a very strategic and theoretical level, but most of us have to deal with this as organizations, as individuals, and we're sort of in the trenches dealing with these challenges. And the so what becomes very challenging. Chuck, and what you're describing here of, of having the ability to sort of do this collectively, many private sector organizations have been working together. And, and Stina, you mentioned quite a few during the, the, the challenge in Ukraine. Cyber provides this framework where you're only as strong as your weakest link, whether that's in your supply chain, whether that is in your customers, whether that is in the people in your organization. How do you think this current state of tension, this current state of capabilities is pushing us as risk practitioners to deal with advanced disruptive attacks in a better way? And then I'll come back to Chuck because I also have a question regarding what lessons can we draw from geopolitical risk management, from geopolitics into the world of cyber and preparedness and planning. But Stina, what do you think? Do you think these, these events are forcing us to rethink the way we're, we're dealing with cyber risk management? I mean, I think to some extent, yes, I think it would be foolish not to. And again, I think that comes down both to the assumptions that we've made, 
but also to to essentially the point around you know where does cyber sit in this spectrum you know when we move to systemic impacts of the scale that we're starting to see you know when countries have to actually you know shut down or declare national emergency on behalf of you know after after an attack where are we then we need to treat it as very much as um a risk that's kind of interlinked to 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 other risks and other aspects of this so i think in that sense we are getting better um or at least we're we're kind of evolving in 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 how we we think about these things and then i think you know just on a very i think what we're seeing as well is much more around that stress testing or at least that scenario planning around okay well what what would um the most impactful thing that can happen be whether that comes and i think that is also kind of realizing that systemic impact that it's not necessarily an attack on us that is going to have the largest impact or at least we should factor in an attack on a system we're dependent on or on a key supplier and see how does that play out on our you know on our estate and 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 what do we do about it i think importantly that aspect of how do we respond to this how do we are we prepared to 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 kind of come back the day after and turn the lights on Chuck, over to you. Cyber is a tool of geopolitical conflict, period. Whether it's driven by a state actor, by a non-state actor, or by some sort of blending or cooperation between the two. So that's kind of the first thing. Um, I like to compartmentalize my thoughts into <laughs> kind of thinking in bullet points here, Nick, trying to sort of get this across if I can. Um, so that's number one. Um, the, number two is that Back to some of the things that we were talking about a little bit earlier in the podcast, and that is that we're in a we're in a period of incredible instability geopolitically. The way countries interact with each other, the way countries and companies interact with each other, and I think the last bit in that sort of cascade is the way companies interact with other companies depending upon their national origin, their target markets, their sectors, their activities – all of this is changing. And underneath all of this is cyber, is cyber infrastructure, is data, is connectivity. And then you put that in motion and you put a layer of conflict on top of it. And, and I think that that means that, yes, cyber is a permanent feature of, of geopolitics. Um, I think it is a driver of and a victim of complexity and instability. And I think to your earlier question that I may not have answered adequately enough, and that is, should we stop using the term cyber? Um, I think maybe we should actually use it even more frequently mm -hmm. as a recognition of its role in geopolitics and as a distinguishing factor from all of the other factors and elements of geopolitics. And just to be clear, we have not paid Chuck to actually say this. Uh, his analysis is exactly on point. No, but you've given me a really good, <laughs> in terms of payment, you've given line. me a really good idea. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah there we go. But, but I think I, I just conscious that we could spend hours on end discussing all of this. And I, I want to bring us back and I want to throw one last question at both of you. I want to sort of bring us back to this point, which is everything that we've talked about here is 
the future is going to be in a constant state of tension between opportunities that technology can provide and the risks of reactions to these opportunities. Whether, as we talked about in a previous podcast, we're looking at regulatory restrictions, sanctions, or cyber attacks, or potentially political preferences that come with who you can work with, who you should work with, and what you importantly cannot do as an organization, as a private sector organization. And by the way, in that chain, Chuck, I'd add citizen to citizen. Interpersonal societal relations are increasingly digitalized and therefore have a cyber aspect to them. But let me throw this question at you right now. And, and, and we can start with you, Stina. Um, if I ask you to, to place a bet today on the fact that we will see at some point in the next five years, a cyber attack that aims to trigger a military reaction, i.e. a very direct instance of cyber warfare, like shutting down the lights in New York City. Would you place that bet on the table or would you say, no, we're always going to see that tension that we discussed throughout the past hour or so? If we're talking about an intentional act to, to you know, start a conflict or to, to, to further a conflict, I would not place that bet. No, I would not, though, um, having said that, I would not say that we won't see the lights go out in New York City. Mm. But I will, I, I, in, in, my, in my kind of view of it, it would not be in that setting, um, simply because there, you know, what, what we started talking about, the deterrence, the balancing, you know, the reward of doing that measured up against the risk, I would say probably that balance is shifting in, in the opposite favor. The risks are becoming higher with doing that type of act and the rewards are becoming lower. Having said that, again, the complexity of this landscape and the capabilities that exist, I would not say it's not impossible. Um, well, I'm on Team Stina on this one. Um, I would bet against that happening. The challenge is, you know, is it something that you feel as an organization that on some level you need to be at least a little bit prepared for? And, and again, that's back to that issue of, you know, where do you draw the lines of likelihood and impact? Um, I think that that's an extremely low likelihood intentional event. Um, I think it's something that's worth thinking about um, because it's something that could happen accidentally. Um, the, the thing is, let's not lose track of the hundreds and thousands and I suppose even millions of smaller cyber events that happen every day that are short of that. And that, you know, before you get to a disaster scenario like that and, you know, the next sort of towering inferno movie will be about a cyber attack. Um, before you get to that scenario, don't forget about all the other things that can happen short of that. Well. To both of you, thank you so much for being on Decrypt. I think this was a fascinating discussion, and I'm sure we will have both of you back to talk about the next time this happens. Uh, but yeah, thanks, guys. It's been fascinating. Thanks a lot for having me, and uh, thanks for a good discussion. Nick, it's a pleasure. Look forward to coming back. We have a 
whole host of episodes coming soon to Decrypt, covering the most crucial topics, breaking news, and strategic horizon scanning within the world of cyber that you need to be aware of. With analysis and discussion from our experts located around the world, subscribe to Control Risks Decrypt as we help you make sense of the cyber and technology issues impacting your business. For more information on how we can help you build a resilient, compliant, and secure organization realizing the benefits of technology, visit us at www.controlrisks.com. And remember, our experts are only ever one email away. Email us at cyber at controlrisks.com.